We're so glad you guys are here. Uh, we know you could be a million other places, but you're here with us, and that's not wasted on us. And so we are wrapping up this series this week called Wonderland. Uh, next week, we're going to jump into a series uh, about the book of James before we head into Easter. And so uh, this is a good time. This is a great time uh, for you to come and check out Journey, not only this week, but going into next week. And so this whole series is based on the idea of when you lay in bed at night, what do you wonder about? And, and I only had four weeks, and, and there's many more things that I'm sure that we wonder about. And we have a what is class coming up. So if you have any questions about the Bible or some of the things in the Bible that will be talked about a lot in that that class that we offer. But um, one of the things that I think that I've really wrestled with in my life, not recently, but in my life, when it comes to all of this, um, is the question of, is this true? Like, is this true? And I don't mean like, is it true that like God exists and God created the world and all this stuff, but more or less like, is it true that this story that we see of God coming to earth in the form of Jesus and dying for us. And, and, and does God really love us? I mean, we keep hearing that. And, and if he does love us, how deep is that love? And, and it's easy sometimes for us to, depending on who you are, to look at God's love and say, well, it's easy. I can understand how God could love those people, but he can't love me because of what I've done or the things I've said or the kind of the person I've become. Or some of us have the opposite approach in this room. You're like, well, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he, right? It's the other people that I question whether God loves. And so what I want to do is just kind of put us all at ease and just kind of look at some of these things today. And I want to start by telling you one of my favorite kind of passages in scripture. It's a section, uh, it takes place in the gospel of Luke. And it's this amazing chapter. And some of this you're going to be familiar with. And, And so in Luke chapter 15, it kind of starts out like this. It says in verse one, the tax collectors and sinners all came to listen to Jesus, which first of all, to me is like this amazing kind of idea. You see, we live in a world where there's all this tension when it comes to Christianity and Jesus and faith and all of these things. But it wasn't always that way. What I mean by that is there was a point in time where these people were coming together and they wanted to hear Jesus. Now, if you turn back just one more chapter in your Bible or just flip on your phone, in chapter 14, what you actually see is there's a large crowd of people there. And it's not just the sinners and tax collectors that came to hear Jesus. It was everybody, including the religious people, including the Pharisees. And so Jesus has kind of started this, this movement and this momentum. And so people are coming to hear this. But some of the people that want to hear what Jesus has to say are the outcasts within their community. The people that everybody has kind of looked down on. Which is this amazing idea of the influence that Jesus had in this message that he's bringing. That, that for them was this brand new message and this brand new way of understanding God and how we relate to God. So it says that there were the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. And, and, and so there's two categories that he's really talking about here. And you have the sinners and the tax collectors. And, and so sinners, and I know that for some of us, we don't like that word. It, it seems so harsh and judgmental. But all sinner, sinning basically is, is you missed the mark. And so the, the word is really kind of this idea that if there's a mark, and, and if you think about like archery or, or shooting or something, like there's a mark that we're supposed to hit like all of us have kind of missed around that to some degree or in some level of our life. And, and so that's kind of what it's talking about. But, but in this story, what's interesting, and you've probably heard this before, is there's sinners and then there's tax collectors. And, and so they even take the tax collectors and put them in a different category because they don't want to offend the sinners, right? And, and tax collectors, if you don't know, these are considered the worst of the worst in their culture. I mean, these are the true outcasts of their culture. And the reason they're so looked down upon is simply tax collectors in that community 
Everything you see that happens in the New Testament happens under the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is one of the greatest empires that's ever been in the world. They ruled most of the world at that time. The way that you do that is through an army and military force and an ever-expanding kingdom. The way you have the largest military in the world is you have to pay for the largest military in the world. And so the way you pay for that is you tax people and you tax a lot. And so what happened in their culture was um, because the Romans were in these new territories that they weren't familiar with, um, people knew how to get around the tax collectors. And so what they started doing was actually hiring local people, people that knew who had money, who knew the trade routes, who knew kind of the ways around the community, and they would set up their booths in important areas where they knew there was going to be a lot of traffic, and they also knew the commerce of what's going on in the community. And so these were people within the community that had turned their back on their community, turned their backs on their brothers and sisters and their neighbors, all for selfish pursuit and to make a buck off of the Roman Empire. And so in their culture, this was like the worst thing that you could do. And so if you're a tax collector, I mean, you are an outcast from the community. You are looked down upon. Nobody wants to have anything to do with you. Your only friends are probably other tax collectors and maybe possibly some sinners. And even the sinners look at the tax collectors like, I don't know about this guy, right? And so it's just this amazing story. And yet what's interesting is no matter how much that people in their community and their society look down upon these people, Jesus keeps engaging these people. In fact, just a couple of chapters later in chapter 19, we see that Zacchaeus, and you've probably heard the story, Zacchaeus was the wee little man, the wee little man was he, right? And, and, and he hears that Jesus is coming and he wants to see what Jesus has to say. And so he goes to see Jesus. And the problem is he can't see Jesus because there's a crowd of people blocking the way. And I think it's this interesting kind of image that here is this guy who desperately wants to see Jesus, but he can't because all the religious people are in the way. And if that's not a picture for our culture and society at times, I don't know what is. And so the Bible says Jesus gets to the place that he looks up and Zacchaeus has kind of climbed into this tree so he can see Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Jesus sees him. And I think this is an interesting line because it says Jesus sees him. And this is a man that everybody else has looked through. This is a man that nobody sees. This is a man that everybody looks around and behind. And nobody makes eye contact with him because of who he is and their culture and what he's done. And it says that Jesus sees him. And what you need to know sometimes, regardless of what you came in here, Jesus sees you. So there's tax collectors and there's sinners, but Luke tells us there's another group too, and this is the religious right. This is the Pharisees, and, and they're there too because they're always trying to trip up Jesus, and, and their big complaint against Jesus is this is a man who welcomes sinners and eats with them, and he welcomes people, and, and they don't understand how somebody that's supposed to be holy and religious could engage with these type of people, and, and the truth is they didn't get it, and the truth is some of us don't get it either. So Jesus decides he's going to teach both groups at the same time, and he's definitively going to show a picture of how God views people and the depth of which he's willing to go and the depth of his love for all of these people. And so he tells them three stories, three short stories about three lost things. And the reason he does this is because we've all lost something. We can all relate to this, that we've lost something, we've misplaced something. And so he's going to use language that everybody in the crowd at some point is going to connect with. And, and here's the other thing. I know for some of us, we don't like the word lost. And, and it seems like this offensive word, but, but here's the thing. Um, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I know my heart and my mind, and I know the things I'm tempted to chase after, And I know the past that I'm capable of taking. 
And so lost, yeah, that kind of makes sense, that sometimes we lose our way. And all of us in this room, at some point, we've kind of wandered off and we've lost our way. We've been overwhelmed by life or circumstances. And, and, and so this is kind of what he's talking about, is that some of us, like there's this path that we should be on or could have been on. But if we're real honest, we've kind of lost our way along the path. So he starts off by, by saying this. He, he talks about sheep and he says this. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Now, we need to stop here real quick and talk about sheep, okay? Um, so the Bible keeps referring us to us as people as sheep. I don't know if you've picked up on that theme. Um, and, and we are like, okay, we're sheep. Well, the problem is, is that sheep are dumb. Um, and, and they are. They're not the smartest animals in, in the world. And, and you can study this for yourself. Um, sheep have the tendency to wander. And we've talked about that, that first week, that sometimes our wandering leads to wandering. And so sheep have the tendency to, to wander. And, and, and sheep, if they're not guided properly, will actually just walk into ravines. And, and you can see this. You can Google videos of this, that, that one sheep will walk into the ravine and the next sheep will just follow them in. And they'll just fall in these ravines. Uh, there's this famous video, you should Google it later, not now, uh, where this sheep falls into this ravine and the, she- the shepherds, they get him out and the sheep jumps right back into it right? And so sheep aren't the smartest. Um, sheep will often go into water. And the problem is, is that they, they have all this wool. And while wool is water repellent, it also still absorbs and it will weigh them down. And eventually the sheep will get into this water. And because of all this wool on them, it will weigh them down so much they can't get out of the water. And so the Bible refers to us as sheep sometime. And the problem with sheep is sometimes sheep walk themselves into dangerous situations that they're not prepared for. And I think it's actually probably a good illustration because sometimes we do the same thing, don't we? He says, won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness? I lost my notes. And go search for the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he is found that he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders, when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. I don't think the religious people like that one very much. And so Jesus paints this picture. He's like, okay, so if you want to know what God's like, God is so excited that this one has returned. And it's this beautiful, touching story. And we probably all heard this story. It's this story that God cares so much that he would leave the 99 in search of the one. And it's this beautiful thing. And it's this simple message. And as a loving shepherd, wouldn't you leave the 99 and go search for the one? The problem is, I think there were sorry some people in the crowd that day that probably think the same way we think. And and they say, well, Jesus, no, I I don't think I would do that. Because I got 99 sheep that now I'm putting at risk because I'm going after one. And and so you just put the whole herd at risk to go find the one sheep. And that doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense that you would take the 99 and they're good and they're secure for now, but that you would go, but remember sheep wander. And so what happens if one of them wander and now we've got this whole conundrum. And so I think there are some people in the crowd that are sitting here listening to the story and they're starting to think, well, this doesn't really make sense that you would do this because you've got the 99, like 99 is good, right? I think what happens is by most worldly common sense standards, I think that God's love sometimes seems a little foolish. And maybe even sometimes a little bit irresponsible. But see, if you were a shepherd in that crowd that day, 
you would have got what he was saying. See, as a shepherd, this is what you do. That sheep is yours. You have vowed to keep that safe, that sheep safe, and you will go to great depths in order to do so. And God is painting this picture that he's so concerned about the loss that God will never give up on him. And he will go in search of that one. And then he says, okay, well, if you don't like that story, here's another one. So he tells another story about this woman, and, and, and she's misplaced one of, of her coins. And I wondered why he painted it as a woman that misplaced the coin, and then I got married, and it all made sense. And so I'm kidding, just kidding. All right. Um, and so this woman, she loses one of her 10 silver coins, and, and he says this. He says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. Now, a silver coin in their day would have been a day's wage, okay? So about a day's worth of money. Won't she light up a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And then when she finds it, she will call on her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So now we have this illustration of this woman and she, she loses this coin. It could have been a man, I get it. And so, but this person loses this coin and, 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 and so there's like this celebration because she searches and she turns everything up inside down in her house until she finds it. And then she eventually finds it and then she's gonna throw this big party to, to which the first question should be, well, well how much did this party cost? <laughs> because you just found the coin and then you had a party which might've cost more than the coin that you actually lost. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? That you would go to all this trouble for this coin and then because you found it, you throw this party that actually maybe was cost more than the coin itself. And so that seems a little fiscally irresponsible. It's a little bit of reckless spending. It just doesn't make sense that you would do that. And then he says, well, there's, there's one more story. And, and, and this story is the story that sticks out the most. And this is a story that you're all familiar with, and, and so I'm not going to tell you anything most of you haven't heard. But, but what I want you to do, is, if you can, is just pretend as if you've never heard this story before. I want you to, to as best as you can, imagine the emotions in the crowd that day, the tension that gets built around this story. And it starts pretty simply. It says, a man had two sons. And in this story, what's going to happen is you're going to see this story of this younger son. And this younger son, one day he looks at his father and he says, uh, give me my share of my inheritance, which is essentially his way in their culture. Because see, typically a lot of your wealth came not only from what you do, but also from what your, your family had done and the, your father. And so they would eventually, when the father passes away, they would divide the inheritance amongst the sons usually. And so um, essentially what he's saying by go ahead and give me my share of the inheritance is I just wish you were dead. Like, I, I don't want to wait for you to die. Like, just go ahead and give me what's mine now. And so that's lost on us, but for, for somebody to say that in the first century, I mean, the crowd would have gasped. Like, who is this person? And what gives them the right to think that they can demand this of their father? So the Bible tells us that the son, he takes his inheritance and he goes to this other land and he lives this life and he's lavish and he's throwing these parties and he's spending all of his inheritance. And, and here's the thing you have to notice when, when in this story, and this is true of us still today, when everything's good and when the spending's going well and the money's going and the beer's flowing and the, your hand, listen, all of these people are around him and it's awesome. 
and it's the life that he wished he'd always had. But then the money runs out. And slowly but surely, the crowd of friends that he once thought he had, they start to walk away. And he gets to this point where he's spent everything that he has. He's in this land, so he doesn't know anybody. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know where to find help. And so the Bible tells us that this son of this once wealthy man who once had all of this money, he finds himself because of his foolish living, he finds himself in a place where he goes and he, he hires himself out to, to work on a farm and, and feeding slop the pigs, which would have been very insulting to a Jewish crowd. I mean, this is like the lowest of the low. I mean, even the tax collectors are like, that's pretty bad. He's left eating slop. He's hit rock bottom. See, what he did is he chased something that he thought would bring him happiness and satisfaction, and it ends up turning on him. There's this great quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And he realizes eventually that, that, you know what, like my father treats his servants and his slaves better than this. And so he has this moment where he's sitting there and he's almost dying from hunger and he's surrounded by pigs and feeding them slop and eating this garbage that that he says, you know what, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm just going to beg that he'll just make me a servant. That's all I want. Like that's all he can imagine is just being a servant at this point. He says, he kind of rehearses in the Bible this line. He says, I will return to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son but let me be like one of your servants. I've sinned against you and God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The Bible tells us that he he makes his way back to his homeland. and, And the Bible says that while he's still a far way off, his father sees him. And the Bible says that his father starts to run towards him. Now, again, the language is is lost on us, but but you have to understand in in their system, it's a very patriarchal system, and especially a man of wealth and stature. um, This is probably a man that has not run ever. (laughs) He didn't have to. See, See, if I need something, I'll tell somebody to go run and get it for me. If I need something, I'll tell somebody else to go get it. And so now there's this image of this father running to his son. The Bible tells us that as the father approaches the son, the son starts to give his speech. Father, I've sinned against God and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's interesting that in this parable, it's the only time that we see Jesus repeat something in a parable. And it's like this line where Jesus is like, this is where we are, right? This is how we feel sometimes, that we've sinned against God and against the people that we love, and we're no longer worthy to call your son. You can't even imagine a better future. 
And see, most of us, especially those of religious right in the crowd, they'd be like, you're right. Who is this kid? Explain yourself. You bet you're, you're darn right you're sorry. But the father stops him and he says to his servants, hurry, bring the best clothes and put it on him and put on a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. My son was dead, but now he is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And I think what's fascinating about this story is the perspective of the son that he's, he's done this thing, this horrible thing. He realizes how far off the path that he's gone, that he is lost, even though we don't like that word. He's lost in life. He's lost in the choices he makes. He has nowhere else to turn. He chose to turn away from his father. And so he goes to his father and he prepares a speech. And what's interesting is while you've got a speech, God was preparing a feast for his son. And so God's not disgusted by us. He loves us. And he says that even if you're the son that chooses, he'll take you back. And not only will he take you back, he'll run towards you. And I love the words that Jesus chooses. While he was still a long way off, which means this, the son still wasn't where he was supposed to be. See, a lot of us, we think, well, yeah, God will take me back as long as I get everything right and I've figured everything out and I've got everything the way it's supposed to be. But that's not the language that we see. While he was still a far way off. Now, as I was working over these stories, there was something that kind of stuck out to me. Um, So the sheep is dumb and it just wanders off. Like it doesn't even know that it's lost. Like it's just da 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 and it's, it's, then it's dead, okay? So like it's just wandering off, it's dumb. The coin doesn't know it's lost, it's a coin. It's been misplaced somehow. It, something's happened and now the coin, not by its own choosing, but just because of life or carelessness, it's lost. And here's the prodigal who chooses to leave. And so what's interesting about these three illustrations is it doesn't matter if you just accidentally wandered off. It doesn't matter if life has just beat you down and now you just feel like you're lost or if you chose to. In fact, I think the way these stories read out is it doesn't really matter how you got to where you are. That God still loves you and wants you back. Jesus saw people, and not only did he see people who were hurt and broken, he sees his children. What's interesting is, is that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, keeps insisting the best view of God is like a father. And so the question for the fathers or mothers in this room is, how far would you go to get your kids back? There's this great um, line from Brennan Manning. He says this, If you took the love of all the best mothers and fathers who have lived in the course of human history, all their goodness, kindness, patience, fidelity, wisdom, tenderness, strength, and love, and united all of those qualities into a single person, that person's love would only be a faint shadow of the furious love and mercy in the heart of God, the Father, addressed to you and me at this moment. There's this saying that we've used around here before, and it says the value of a thing is determined by the price it will bring. And so the value of something is always dependent on what someone's willing to do or to offer for it. 
And so it doesn't matter what you think about it or what the world thinks about it or what culture thinks about it. What matters is is what somebody would be willing to pay to get that, what they would be willing to do. And so how deep is this love of the Father? There's this interesting thing that happens after Jesus is there's these guys and, and they continue to write these letters and books that we now call the New Testament. But, but in these letters and books, they try to explain what they've experienced and seen. And in one particular case, there's a guy named John. Now, John is one of the closest followers of Jesus. He's one of the younger ones. Uh, he writes a gospel that we see and he, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And so he has this deep relationship with Jesus. And so he experienced a lot with Jesus. He's also the one that's put in charge of taking care of Mother Mary the mother of Jesus after Jesus dies. So so he has a tight-knit relationship with Jesus, who, as we keep seeing, is the best understanding of God. So if he understands Jesus, he understands God. And he's also the disciple that lives the longest. And so he sees and experiences not only things that happened through Jesus, but also everything that happened at the beginning of the church and all of the ways in which the Holy Spirit worked in people. And so he's seen and experienced a lot and probably knows a whole lot about God and what God is like. And in one of his letters, here's what he says. He says, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. And then what he does is he tries to describe God. And he's trying to describe God here. And here's what he says. God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. So the word that he uses that feels best to describe God of all of the words that he could have used is just love. There's this great quote by Joseph Langford. It's going to be a little long, but it's worth it. I promise. He says this. We reduce God to our own dimensions, ascribing to him our own reactions and responses, especially our own petty and conditional kind of love. And so end up believing in a God cast in our own image and likeness. And this is what we've done about God. But the true God, the living God, is entirely other. Precisely from this radical otherness derives the inscrutable and transcendent nature of divine love, for which our limited human love is but a distant metaphor. God's love is much more than our human love, simply simply multiplied and expanded. God's love for us will ever be mystery, unfathomable, awesome, entirely beyond human expectation. Precisely because God's love is something no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man conceived. Paul will later try to illustrate as best as he can how the depth of this love. And so in Romans chapter 8, he he writes this passage and he says this. He says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? And so that's a great question. That's the question maybe some of us have about ourselves. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Because we look at those things and we're like, if I'm in those circumstances, then maybe God doesn't love me or something's happened. He says, no, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God love. And then he's going to list all of the things that'll try to separate you. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow can ever, nor even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the question is, do you believe that type of love exists. And here's what some of us need to know. 
And here's what some of us need to remind ourselves of. God is love. And God loves you. And I don't know what you've heard before, but the reality is nothing will make him love you more and nothing will make him love you less. And God doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you. One more quote from Brennan Manning. He says this, For his love is never, never, never based on our performance, never conditioned by our moods of elation or depression. The furious love of God knows no shadows or altercation or change. It is reliable and always tender. Jesus once said to a group of people who were having some trouble, he said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened and heavy-hearted, and I will give you rest. Now, the first people that heard all of these things, they said, well, that sounds like some pretty good news. If this is true, then this sounds like really good news. And, and, and they said that this is the good news. This is the, this is the gospel. And they believed, as I hope we believe, that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, and the love of God tells us that tomorrow can be better than yesterday. The gospel tells us that change is possible. The gospel tells us it doesn't have to be the way it's always been. And the gospel tells us no matter what you've heard, you are loved, you have value, and you have worth. And there's a God who will leave the 99 and will turn the house upside down and will run to find you. Shannon Adler said this, You are not what others think you are. You are what God knows you are. There will always be someone willing to hurt you, put you down, gossip about you, belittle your accomplishment, and judge your soul. It is a fact that we must face. However, if you realize that God stands beside you when others cast stones, you will never be afraid, never feel worthless, and never feel alone. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he, he lists all of the sins. And I didn't want to put them up on the screen because I'm, I'm afraid that you just focused on certain ones. But they're all there. You can look it up. And, and he lists all the sins. And I'm talking like the big ones and the small ones and all the ones that we struggle with and the ones that we point fingers at and tell that they struggle with, right? And, and so he lists all of these sins. And, and, and then he has this beautiful line. And he, he, says, and he says that some of you were once like that, which is this reality that we're all kind of the same. All of us in this room, have been lost and wondered and struggled. So some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Christ Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Here in just a second, we're going to sing a song. And it's probably new to most of you, but it's quickly become one of my favorite songs. And it's explaining God's love and everything we see and experience, even in creation itself. But towards the end of the song, there's this line, and it says this, when you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. And some of us have some failures, don't we? I do. But then he says this, but you're the one who never leaves behind the one. So I hope you know that. I hope you believe that. And I hope you can put your trust and faith in that. And so here's what's going to happen next. And I've talked longer than I was supposed to, but that's okay. Um, because I don't want you to wonder. And I don't want you to wonder. So this is Baptism Sunday. 
And here's what that looks like. We'll baptize people anytime, but every once in a while we take a special Sunday and we do it. And there's nothing special about the water or the tub. Look at it. I promise there's not. Um, It's what it represents. And what it represents is that change is possible. And what it represents is that the old has gone and the new has come. What it represents is a new beginning. And so for some of us in this room, maybe this is the next step we need to take. We always say it's not the steps you've taken to this point, it's the next one that matters the most. And so if if you're interested in baptism and you didn't bring clothes, we've got you covered. We got it all, including underwear. (laughs) You see, sometimes I find myself in situations where I wonder, what if I had? And I don't want anybody to wonder that. So the band's going to come up, we're going to sing a song. And if you would love to take that next step and to put your trust and your faith in Jesus and to publicly declare it through baptism, I'll be down at the bottom of that ramp. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Let's pray.